Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old-time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old-time radio. Once again, and welcome to Canadians in Old Time Radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, president and founder of COTRA, the Canadian Old Time Radio Alliance, and it's always my pleasure to introduce you to more Canadians in Old Time Radio. We have a little something different this week from our Made in Canada file. Last week we heard Don Gray, Marine Investigator. This week, it's Harmony Harbor. Harmony Harbor. Directed by Marjorie Payne at the organ. There's where the girl on my heart waits 
The first colonies were isolated in the new lands, not only from Europe, but from each other as well. The only link between them was that which is now a barrier, the sea. The swamps, the forests, the mountains of the land were at that time more resistant to the passage of man than was the trackless ocean itself. Hence all travel was by water. Yet the sea was also a perilous road. With its storms and uncharted shoals, it was an undiscriminating killer of great ships and small, equally deadly to those bound from the old world to the new and to those journeying from one coastal settlement to another. The packet, three months out of Bristol, running heavy laden in the east wind and the fog, was tripped and broken by the same granite shoals that caught the little schooner beating up from Yarmouth. The sea was a hazardous, almost an impossibly hazardous road, but it was the only one, so it was used. The reputation of Yarmouth County navigators was established in the early days of the settlement. At that time, they depended on the rising town of Halifax and on New England as centers of trade. So every Yarmouth family needed a sailing vessel of some sort. To be able to handle a sailing vessel, writes one historian, became a necessity of their existence, and the skill they then acquired as navigators has been handed down from generation to generation. Later, as Yarmouth grew, more hands came to work the forests, and the barrier which had forced men to look always to the sea began to give way under the axe and chain and plow. Trees were brought to the mills, and new markets for lumber were sought in Newfoundland, Bermuda, and the West Indies. Spruce timber and dried and pickled fish were shipped in larger vessels built in Yarmouth, direct to their destinations. Skilled in navigation, carried Yarmouth men across all the oceans and seas. Yarmouth vessels carried spices and Australian wool, molasses from the West Indies, and tea from Ceylon. But their knowledge of the sea served them only so far. It was like the art of fencing or dancing upon a tightrope. Knowledge of the balance, but not of the manipulation of forces. The ships they sailed used, but could not oppose the strength of the ocean. Their vessels balanced the pressure of the wind against the pressure of the sea, and men and ships alike were hazarded in that delicate equilibrium. Below. 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 
following letter to his wife. On the 10th of September, being cruising near to Cape Blanco on the Spanish main, we chased a Spanish schooner ashore and destroyed her. Being close in with the land and becalmed, we discovered a schooner and three gunboats under Spanish colors making for us, keeping up at the same time a constant fire from their bow guns, which was returned from two guns pointed from our stern. One of the gunboats did not advance to attack us. As the enemy drew near, we engaged them with muskets and pistols, keeping with oars the stern of the rover towards them, and having all our guns well loaded with great and small shot ready against we should come to close quarters. When we heard the commander of the schooner give orders to the two gunboats to board us, one on our port bow and the other on our port waist, I suffered them to advance in that position until they'd come within about 15 yards, still firing on them with small arms and stern guns. I then manned the oars on the port side and pulled the rover around to bring her starboard broadside athwart the schooner's bows and poured into her a whole broadside of great and small shot which raked her fore and aft while she was full of men ready for boarding. I instantly shifted over on the other side and raked both gunboats in the same manner which must have killed and wounded a great number of those on board and done great damage to their boats. I then commenced a close action with the schooner, which lasted three glasses, and having disabled her sails and riggings much, and finding her fire grow slack, I took advantage of a slight air of wind to back my headsails, which brought my stern aboard the schooner, by which we were enabled to board her, at which time the gunboat shoved off in a very battered condition. We found her to be the Santa Rita, fitted out the day before for the express purpose of taking us. Every officer aboard her was killed. There were 14 men dead on her deck when we boarded her, and 17 wounded. The prisoners, including the wounded, amounted to 71. It is with infinite pleasure that I add that I had not a man hurt, but from the best account I could obtain, the enemy lost 54 men. And the sea and 
the gallway and the whaleway, where the wind's like a wedded night. And all I ask is a man made on from a laughing fellow commands, the sudden white of the first sail loosed, another and another until the cloud lies upon the waters. A full-rigged ship, all sails drawing, sets forth to sea. Jem Johnson and me enjoy our liberty in very good health. Mini Bill Blake, Will Weatherly, Jem Johnson and self. We ain't like them jolly tars you'll see in a play, a rescuing heroin and shouting belay. Which them there's Belnescuses of what heroes be. Like Bill Blake, Will Weatherly, Jen Johnson, and me. I ship ain't no saucy bird as flies o'er the foam, but the top heavy battleship once rolled her way home. What's rolled her way home again from the salt Chinese sea? With Bill Blake, Will Weatherly, Jim Johnson, and me. And maybe we're handymen, and maybe we ain't. But this here's our characters without any paint. Just more plain blue jackets as is Rachel. Minin' Bill Blake, Will Weatherly, Jem Johnson, and me. Will four jolly sailormen come up from the sea? There's Bill Blake, Will Weatherly, Jem Johnson, and me. Will four jolly sailormen, four jolly sailormen, four jolly sailormen, we are. The face of the ocean is sometimes a mask behind which mighty forces are deploying for combat with silence and secrecy of military operations. The sailors in the next song know the sea and the masks it can assume, 
they know how unromantic is their trade. Professionals, they know a sea different from that of the landsman, just as an aeroplane pilot guiding his machine day in, day out through the vicissitudes of weather has a different conception of flight. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry writes of the significance of nature to these men. The sight of massing clouds is no mere spectacle to the pilot. It's a matter of concern to his physical being, and to his mind it means a set of problems. Before he's off the ground, he has taken its measure, and between him and it, a bond is formed, which is a veritable language. The face of the sea is, is as variable as that of the sky. To passengers in an aeroplane, the storm is invisible. Seen from a great height, the waves have no relief packets of fog have no movement. The surface of the sea appears to be covered with great white motionless palm trees, palms marked with seams and ribs stiff in a sort of frost. The sea is like a splintered mirror, but the seaplane pilot knows there's no landing here. The hours during which a man flies over this mirror are hours in which there's no assurance of the possession of anything in the world. These palms beneath the plain are so many poisoned flowers. These traces of wind over the face of the sea are not objects of the pilot's admiration, but of his cogitation. He looks to them to tell him the direction of the wind, or the progress of the storm, and the quality of the night to come. fragrant by the presence of tobacco, tar, lantern oil, and sour, damp clothing. When to this fetid atmosphere was added the plague, 
which occasionally emptied ships of life as quickly as though the furious sea itself had overwhelmed them, it became so foul that sailors sometimes preferred to wait out their off-watchers on the freezing decks rather than in the bunks below. Less than a century ago, however, even this horror of shipborne disease did not always suggest to people that fresh air might benefit the sick. In May 1868, the following claim appeared in a Halifax newspaper. Onions placed in a room where there's smallpox will blister and decompose with great rapidity not only soon, but will prevent the spread of the disease. I think as a disinfectant, they have no equal, but keep them out of the stomach. The maker of this claim had been mistrustful of onions as a food ever since the time 18 years before when he had been in charge of a hundred men aboard a ship stricken with cholera. A number of these men had eaten onions. Those who had, he said, were soon attacked by the disease and nearly all died, while those who had not escaped. But if onions were ruled out by this writer, other fresh foods were not. By the middle of the 19th century, laws required that ship's stores include fresh vegetables and fruit, or fruit juices. And long before this time, the British Navy's habit of doling out daily rations of lime juice to its crews had given to all Englishmen the common name of limey. of the Atlantic at the port of Halifax, the CBC has brought you Harmony Harbor. The Acadian Mail Quartet, under the direction of Marjorie Payne at the organ, sang White Wings, Eight Bells, The Pirate Song, 
I must down to the seas again, where four jolly sailormen, Brother Will, Brother John, and the Ediston Light. Script was written by Frank W. Doyle. Narration by Sid Davison. The program came to you from the Nova Scotian Hotel Studios of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, produced by Doug Hughes, with tactical operation by Joe Poltz and may be heard again next Sunday at the same time. The featured actor in our Canadians Abroad segment is Quebec-born Stacey Harris. Now, I have it on reasonably reliable authority that he also played Carter Trent in Pepper Young's Family, but I unfortunately don't have an episode with him in it. What I do have, though, is an episode of This Is Your FBI, from April 18, 1952, and it's called The Masquerader. He presents, This is Your FBI. This is Your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Presented transcribed as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Tonight, the subject of our FBI file, Impersonation. Its title... The Masquerader. Occasionally, it is possible to remove any ill after effects of a crime. When a criminal is apprehended after a burglary, for example, and his loot is returned intact to the victim, no one is penalized except the lawbreaker. However, such complete restitution is never possible in the case of one particular criminal, the imposter. He usually works with forged credentials or fictitious letters of introduction from well-known people. Even after the imposter is apprehended, he leaves in his wake a wave of suspicion, a feeling on the part of his victims that never again will they be able to believe anyone. The case you are about to hear is the story of one of those criminals. Perhaps one of the most brazen imposters in the history of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. (laughs) 
The night's file opens in the rural district of the Midwestern state. It is early afternoon as an elderly man in overalls walks back and forth in front of the entrance to a newly constructed bridge. As a truck from one of the neighboring farms approaches, he holds his ancient rifle at his side and waves the truck to a stop. Hold it, Roy! Stop right there! What's up, Clay? Nothing wrong. You want to cross? Of course I do. Cost you 50 cents. What for? Crossing? Clyde, I'm late now. I'll see you later. No more. You start without paying and I'll blow your tires off. You've been at the jug again. This ain't no fool matter. Now on, it costs 50 cents for friends and a dollar for strangers to cross my bridge. Your bridge? That's what I said. I bought it today. From who? The United States government, that's who. Paid a man $2,000 for it and I got a deed to prove it. That's my boy Willie collecting at the other end. See, he's got a customer. Hey, Klein, step up on the running board and take a look. Yeah, I can't see that far without my specs. Willie got into that car with the fella. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that's his car, all right. Who's? The sheriff. Meanwhile, in a nearby large city... A distinguished-looking middle-aged man sits in a hotel suite, dictating to an attractive girl. And this will serve to introduce my secretary, Miss... Uh, uh, what name are you using here? Ann Pope. To introduce my secretary, Miss Ann Pope. New paragraph. Hmm? Because so many people here have been so kind, I find that purchasing farewell gifts for each will deplete my supply of cash. I would therefore appreciate your cashing the enclosed check. Uh-huh. Usual closing? Yes, if you're ever in Scotland doing the grouse shooting and so forth. Yeah, okay. Uh, use the blue checks. I don't have any. But I had some printed last week in Riverdale. I left that package on the train. Oh, no. Look, the checks will bounce just as high if they're yellow. The yellow checks are for next week. They've got the name Roger Sinclair printed on them. You'd better take a memory course. First, you have the wrong initials put in my Inverness cape. Then you forget to tell the hotel here that I'm Lord Roger Hudson. And now you've lost the blue checks. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. Be right. I hate to hold myself up as an example. But when I was an admiral and sold those people the destroyer to use for scrap, I knew the history of that ship from the day it was launched. Yeah. Maybe I can get the blue checks if I call Lost and Found at the station. Girl, use your head. Huh? The law just missed us at Riverdale. If they trace us to the train, they're waiting for someone to claim that package. Oh. I don't mind being caught by the police if they outwit me, but I refuse to help them. Okay, okay. What do you want me to do, kill myself? No, I'll need you in Temple City. Jim, can I interrupt? Oh, sure, Frank. Oh, this is Mr. Crawford, Agent Taylor. Howdy. Crawford, how are you? Nice to meet you. Won't you sit down, please? The SAC wants us to handle Mr. Crawford's complaint, Jim, but I'm tied up taking a statement on another case. Oh, go ahead, Frank. I'll fill you in later. Thanks, Jim. Mm-hmm. Now, sir, can I be of help to you? Well, I sure hope so. Seems like I got slicker good and proper. Oh, how? Well, fella yesterday sold me the new bridge in Monroe County. Sold it to me for $2,000. Man, that'd be a fool not to pay that for a brand new bridge. Did he explain why he was selling it so cheaply? Mm-hmm, yeah. Said he was an official from some federal agency and they was getting out of the bridge business. Mm-hmm. Well, representing himself as a federal officer would put him under our jurisdiction. 
Master, what was this man's name? John Smith. Can you describe him? Well, kind of tall, had gray hair, about 55 or so. Did he just take your money and tell you the bridge was yours? Oh, sir, I got me a deed. Uh, do you have it with you? <laughs> right here in the pocket. There she is. Thank you. Mr. Crawford, I'd like you to leave this with me, if you will. Oh, you reckon it'll help you find him? It might. I'm going to send it on to our laboratory and see if they have anything else in his handwriting on file. Oh. If they have and we locate a suspect, we'll probably want you to identify him. Uh, well, uh, I rather I didn't have to. Oh, why? Well, if I get in the same room with him, I might lose my head and, well, no telling what'd happen. <laughs> might even wind up with another bridge. A toast, Mr. Wheeler, to Temple City, the metropolis that care forgot and sunshine remembered. Why, that's a wonderful say. I learned poetic phrasing as a boy on the banks of the Ganges. Have you ever been in India? Uh, no. Oh, what a shame. I always say, see Temple City first. We've got 37 square miles within the city limits, and Mrs. Wheeler and I have set ourselves to getting to know each of them. A high goal. Oh, uh, Miss Sheridan, did you send those cables? Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, Miss Sheridan, Mr. Wheeler. How do you do? How do you do, Mr. Wheeler? Mr. Wheeler is head of the Temple City Chamber of Commerce. That must be exciting. Well, Mr. St. Clair has consented to allow us to tender him a testimonial dinner on Saturday night. Isn't that nice of them? Oh, very, sir. I wish I could return the favor. Uh, Miss Sheridan, uh, would you like to attend the dinner? Oh, yes. Hi, George, I have thought of something. Uh, Mr. Wheeler, uh, what's your favorite charity? Why, well, I, I guess the uh, Temple City Federation. I'll put on a polo match a week from Saturday, with all proceeds going to the Federation. Should raise, I'd say, $10,000. Oh, but Mr. Sinclair, you have an appointment a week from Sunday with the ambassador. Cancel it. Why to have my horses and men flown in? And I'll buy the first $1,000 worth of tickets myself. Oh, no, we can't let you do that. Oh, oh, nonsense. Miss Sheridan, take care of the details. You'll have to form a committee, Mr. Wheeler. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, Mr. St. Clair, uh, you'll serve on it, won't you? In one of the lesser positions, you can put me down as, oh, say, uh, treasurer... FBI headquarters in Washington is the nerve center of the organization. It is notified of every case and almost invariably requested to help. In this case, for example, the fictitious deed given to the elderly farmer as part of the bridge swindle was sent to the FBI laboratory. There it was examined by the Bureau's handwriting experts who studied it carefully, then reported. Frank Washington just reported on that deed. They get anything? A complete ident. It's a swindler I arrested back east nine years ago. Who's that? Roger Mason. Alias Arthur Sinclair, Roger Calhoun, George Lake, Crown Prince Leopold, Major General Carson, Sir Howard Reseda, Baron Von Steuben, and a few others. Quite a career. Well, he's been a bad check artist and imposter for 30 years, except for interruptions in jail. Selling bridges is specialty? Oh, no, he's versatile. He's worked every imaginable variety of confidence game and done it everywhere. Any particular pattern? Well, he usually spends about a week on each job. Goes from one job to the next without a break. Well, it could mean he doesn't work from any home base. No, he lives out of a trunk, a wardrobe trunk. Operates solo? Well, a few times he's been arrested working alone. On other jobs, he's used a female confederate who poses as his secretary. Always the same woman? No, he switches every couple of years. All uh, Washington sent pictures of Mason. They should be here by this evening. Come in here and help me. Okay. I I just can't make this tie. 
Hey, don't you look elegant. These evening clothes were made for me by the Royal Tailors in London. Roger, we're alone. They were. Oh. I insisted that the head of the firm cut the cloth himself. And as a bonus, I paid an extra 20 pounds. By check. <laughs> Stand still, please. Oh, speaking of checks, did you make out that one for the polo tickets? Mm-hmm. It's in an envelope in your inside pocket. I'll present it to the Toastmaster as I finish my speech. There. That the way you like it tied? Ah, fine. And, uh, Anne, uh? your work this week has been excellent. Oh, uh-huh. do I get a reward? Indeed you do. Next time I'm an admiral, I'll make you a lieutenant in the waves. Agent Taylor. Uh, Jim, this is Frank. Yo. I'm at the railroad station. A ticket seller just picked Mason's picture out of the album. He bought two tickets to Temple City. Two? Mason had a girl with him. Hmm. Any description? Just that she was blonde and well-dressed. How long ago were they there? A week or so. And then he's probably just about ready to leave Temple City. I'll call the police there and ask them to check on visiting celebrities. There's a plane to Temple City at 7.20 tomorrow morning. Okay. Make reservations, Frank. We'll meet at the airport. and greeting. I'm sorry I came. I should have come here ten years ago. <laughs> to be truthful, oh, pardon me, I'm pardon. not deserving of the many Excuse kind me. things you've said uh, about me. Oh, I'm sorry. As a matter May of I fact, get through, please? Excuse me, please. Pardon me. Miss Sheridan, hmm? I, I hate to bother you. Oh, that's all right. I, well, well, I really don't know know how to tell you this. I... Is anything wrong? No, no, no. no. Just that, that well, the reason I was called to the phone, that well, it concerned Mr. St. Clair. Who was calling? The police. Oh? Oh, this is ridiculous. I told them that it was, but they they wanted to know if Mr. St. Clair was really Mr. St. Clair. Well, who did they think he was? Oh, I didn't even ask. The whole thing is so outlandish. Why don't they come over and see for themselves? Oh, they wanted to. I assured them that it wasn't necessary. I guess really I shouldn't even have bothered you. I'm glad you did. We missed Mr. St. Clair's whole speech. Yes, that's a shame. He's coming off the desk. Oh, he wants to see me. Please don't mention this to him. It would only embarrass the entire city. I'll keep the secret. A wonderful speech, Mr. St. Clair. Oh, thank you, Mr. Wheeler. I just remembered an important cable I have got to send immediately. Oh, can I help? Uh, No, Mr. Sheridan can have it. Excuse us for a minute, please. You did it again, you idiot. Never mind me. The cops called while you were making your speech. Are you sure? Wheeler spoke to them and chilled the beef, but it can't last. We better get out of here. You're finally right. Now what did I do? Nothing. Nothing at all. You just wrote a check for $2,000 for those polo tickets. But you told me to. I never told you to write it on the account where I really keep my money. return in just a moment to tonight's exciting case from the official files of your FBI. And now back to the FBI file, The Masquerader. Each year, the American people are cheated out of millions of dollars by swindlers of every description. Some of the schemes which find ready victims are so ludicrous 
so patently fraudulent it seems improbable that they could be successful in even the most backward section. Yet your FBI and local law enforcement agencies receive daily complaints and know that actually many other victims exist who are too proud to report that they were fooled. The way to prevent your joining the list of victims is simple. Be careful. If a stranger approaches with a business proposition that promises fantastic returns, use every possible caution. Remember that no one has yet made money grow on trees. Remember, too, that only one person can keep you from being swindled. That person is you. Tonight's FBI file continues a few days later at the Temple City Chamber of Commerce. Special Agent Taylor is interviewing Mr. Wheeler. To make matters worse, I even lent him my car. That's the one you told the police about? Yes. I thought the bank was joking when they said he stopped payment. Stopped payment? Yeah. Well, I heard all the checks were returned marked no such account. All except mine. Well, that means he actually has an account at that bank, then. Oh, uh, Mr. Wheeler, where is that check you gave you? Oh, uh, right here. Thank you. I'll wire the bank and see if they've heard from him again. Now, did, um... Either Mason or the girl mention any city? Well, plenty of them. London, Paris, Rangoon, uh, Calcutta. Uh, no, what I mean, sir, is any in this country? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, pardon me. Certainly. Uh, Mr. Wheeler? Uh, this is Agent Dixon. Is Agent Taylor there, please? Uh, just a minute. For you. Thanks. Yeah. Jim, the state police just found Wheeler's car in Emerson County. It was cracked up on Route 9. Oh, when? They didn't say. Mason left a note of apology and a check on the front seat. Another check? To cover the repairs. How near a city was the car? Fairly close to Emeryville. Okay, Frank. I'll meet you at headquarters in uh, ten minutes, and we'll drive over there. Well, Roger, we're pulling out. We're leaving Emeryville. Yes. Sure glad to blow that place. Aren't you? Roger, put down the paper. What for? Well, don't you want to get a last look? I have no sentimental attachment for Emeryville. We didn't make a quarter here. We're getting out alive. No thanks to your driving. And you'll just have to be more careful. I asked you not to speed that way just before we hit the telegraph pole. I'm sorry. Yeah, that doesn't mend my leg. I know. It's not the physical discomfort I mind so much, but it throws off our whole schedule. Look. Roger, when we get to Pittsburgh, let's take a vacation till your leg gets better. You had two days off while I was in the hospital. I mean a real vacation, a long one. And in this business, we take our long vacations in jail. <laughs> you sound like you expect to be collared. Let me explain something to you. Legitimate shopkeepers pay for the merchandise they sell. So do we. They pay in money, we pay in time. Now, let me read for a while, will you? Want a drink? Huh? Let's hit the club car and get a drink. Oh, maybe later. Well, I think I'll go in alone. Oh, just a minute. Hmm? Listen to this. On Friday afternoon, Colonel John Hall will make a speech at the groundbreaking ceremonies for a new defense factory in Auburn. Where's that? Near Pittsburgh. Well. Get out my army uniform. I can feel myself becoming General Roger Carson. How about the bum knee? I'm recuperating from wounds received in Korea. And uh, get me some paper. I better make notes on my speech. I thought that uh, Colonel's making the speech. I'll do it instead. Won't he beef? How can he? I outrank him. Time is the important element in following a criminal like Roger Mason. The vital thing is to cut down his lead and keep cutting it down until you apprehend him. In this case, Agents Taylor and Dixon arrived at the scene of the wrecked car a few hours after leaving Temple City. 
Agent Dixon began a close inspection of the vehicle, while Agent Taylor went off to interview the neighboring farmers. In a short time, he returned to their car. Get anything, Jim? Well, the farmer across the road was awakened by the crash late Saturday night. He came out and drove Mason and the girl to the Emeryville Hospital. How badly were they hurt? Oh, the girl was shaken up. Mason hurt his leg. Hospital reports he sustained a badly wrenched knee. He was in the hospital till this morning. Was the girl hospitalized? Overnight. The Emeryville police are checking hotels and clubs for us. Did you get anything from the car? No, all the papers and maps in the glove compartment were wheelers. Uh, Calling car three. This is car three. Report in from Officer Adams. Miss Sheridan checked out of the Emeryville Hotel this morning. Anyone with her? Mason. Travel counter clerk says he bought two tickets for Pittsburgh. Traveling on what? The 9.40 train this morning. I checked. That train's already in Pittsburgh and unloaded. Thanks. We'll head over there anyway. Let me help you. Oh, thank you, Mayor. That's the wheelchair squeaking, not me. <laughs> Are you comfortable, General? Yes, and I wish you army nurses would stop treating me like I'm an invalid. I'm sorry, sir. My orders came direct from the Pentagon. Well, no point bickering here and wasting the mayor's time. Well, that's all right. Mayor, I know that you're under the impression I came to Auburn to dedicate an ordinary defense plant. Aren't you? No. And because I've investigated you and found you can be trusted, I'll tell you the real reason I'm here. General, do you think you should? Lieutenant, when I want your advice, I'll ask for it. Sorry, sir. Mayor, I'm... uh, I'm what you might call an imposter. Huh? Uh, this wheelchair, this uniform, they're just parts of a disguise. Actually, I've never even been to Korea. Aren't you a general either? Yes, but in the counterintelligence division. Uh, usually I work in plain clothes. Have you received a letter from the army about me? No. You will. It'll authorize you to advance whatever expense money I need while I'm here. It won't run more than a few thousand dollars. If it wasn't for the groundbreaking, can I ask why you did come? Uh, this time, Lieutenant, I will ask your advice. Well, sir, you've told the mayor this much. Mayor, this is top secret. You'll have to keep it in the strictest confidence. We don't have a spy ring in Auburn, do we? Exactly what I'm here to find out. Checking every hotel and club in a large city is a tedious job, but by the time Agents Taylor and Dixon arrived in Pittsburgh, the FBI field office there had finished the chore. Mason and his female accomplice were not registered in any of them. A call to the railroad station revealed that the train on which the pair had come to Pittsburgh was still in the railroad yards and available for inspection. Let's see, drawing room G's the other end of the car. Uh-huh. Porter said he hadn't cleaned up yet. Good. Now, Frank, when we get through in the compartment, let's check cab drivers, huh? They might remember that wardrobe trunk. Uh, here we are. Go ahead. Right. Didn't leave much. Well, maybe there's something in the washroom. No, there's nothing in here. This closet's empty, too. Anything on that shelf? No, I looked. And there's a newspaper under the seat. I'll get it. That's the Emeryville paper. Some scraps of paper under there, too. Huh? Note paper. Just says, uh, Korea. This one says, explain why no medals. 
What do you think that means? With Mason, it could mean anything. Frank, look. There's something torn from this page of the paper. Might be a lead. He's certainly making you brave. Only repeating what I told him. And this is confidential. He strained himself trying to wear all his medals at once. General Roger Carson. I guess I've been introduced. Thank you. Mr. Mayor, ladies and gentlemen. Using this type of hand microphone makes me think I'm back in Korea talking to my troops. I heard the mayor mention my medals. I'm not wearing any, as you can see. I never wear them because I didn't really win them. My men did. They deserve every one of them. (laughs) A month ago, I had no idea that today I'd be here in Auburn, the city that care forgot and sunshine remembered. This is a happy community. Look around you. Look at the people on this platform, all of them smiling, friendly. There's my nurse, your mayor, Councilman Brown, and uh, uh, this gentleman just coming onto the platform. Like me, he's a stranger in town, but a man I knew many years ago. I believe he's here to ask me to give up my military career. Aren't you, Mr. Taylor? That's right, Mason. You and Miss Patterson are under arrest. Roger Mason and Ann Patterson were convicted in federal court and both received sentences in federal penitentiaries. Special Agents Taylor and Dixon assumed Roger Mason and the girl had gone to Auburn when they called the newspaper in Emeryville and learned what item had been torn from the paper found in the compartment. Once in Auburn, it was a simple matter to apprehend both Mason and his accomplice in the matter you have just witnessed. Thus, another pair of swindlers was removed from circulation by the special agents of your FBI. But there are still thousands upon thousands of them using old schemes and new every day to cheat the American people out of tremendous sums of money. Your FBI will do everything in its power to apprehend those who violate a federal statute over which it has jurisdiction, and that does give you some protection. But to repeat what was stated earlier, your best protection is constant caution. Next week, we will dramatize another case from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Its subject, bank robbery. Its title, The Loner. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Life Assurance Society's broadcast are adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of places or persons, living or dead, is accidental. Tonight, the music was composed and conducted by Frederick Steiner. The author was Jerry D. Lewis. Your narrator was William Woodson, and Special Agent Taylor was played by Stacey Harris. 
Others in the cast were B. Benaderet, Herb Butterfield, Hal Dawson, Herbert Rawlinson, Victor Rodman, and Carlton Young. This is Your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Larry Keating speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. And inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time when the Equitable Life Assurance Society will bring you another thrilling transcribed story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Loner on This Is Your FBI. Stay tuned for the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. There's fun for the whole family when Ozzie and Harriet come your way next. This program came to you from Hollywood. That's all the time we have this week. Next time, our show will have a definite Easter flavor to it. See you then. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again... We'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking.